What is the most unbelievable thing you have ever witnessed or encountered? For me, I think it has to be the birth of my first child. Not that the births of the other children weren't incredible, but it was that first child, that first time kind of experiencing the miracle of life that I thought, really? This is how it happens? I'd seen the miracle of life in high school health class or whatever, but there was just something about how my knowledge encountered reality that made the experience extraordinary. And I'll never forget when Elliot's head came into the world, and I, I wish there would have been a picture there to take, or something there to take my picture, like on a roller coaster when you go down the, the, the part that drops. It kind of catches you in a moment of shock. Wish there would have been so I could see my reaction. But I'll never forget it. And I remember looking at Chelsea as she's continuing to, to push him out into the world and saying, there's a person in there. I knew this, but now it was taking on, you know, there was a human being inside of you and he's coming out. And she was like, yes, yes. It was unbelievable and true. There are many uh, less frequent, unbelievable and true events that happen all the time. Sometimes, um, some of you might think of the moon landing, right? Some, some of you think that happened in a, a Hollywood basement, but for most of us, the, the moon landing, unbelievable event, true. Others, uh, maybe you can think of the hiker. There was a story a few years ago where he fell and a boulder fell on his arm and he was trapped for 127 hours and he ended up amputating his arm so that he could survive. It's unbelievable and true story. They made it into a movie. Incredible. the most unbelievable and true and good story I know is the story of the gospel. How the God who created us became one of us so that he might save us from our sin and into his people. And this wonderful story began with the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we will see as we consider the first few verses of the Gospel of John together this morning. And what I hope to impress upon you is that Jesus is the Creator and Redeemer. This is what John wants us to see. Furthermore, John wants us to understand that Jesus is God. And we'll, we'll put all these pieces together, and so you'll see in your outline there that Jesus is God, Jesus is Creator, and Jesus is Redeemer. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for this season, wherein we have the opportunity to remember just how much it is that you have loved us. That you would send your eternal Son to take on a second nature, becoming the man Jesus, so that he might become killable, so that he could take the wrath we deserve, so that we might enjoy the blessing that only he deserves when we repent of our sin and submit our lives to him. This is wonderfully good news. God, we thank you 
that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Thank you that He has promised us. He is with us and will be now and forevermore. Lord, together as we sit under Your Word this morning, we pray that it would have its full effect of shaping our affections, causing us to fall more desperately in love with You. Lord, this morning we we lift our eyes to that which is eternal, and together we eagerly await the return of our risen and ruling King Jesus. And it's Him that we hope to learn more about today, Lord. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. And so, John is the author of the book of John. He's also written other books you might know. First, second, and third, John. And the book of Revelation. He's a prolific gospel writer. He spent much of his life with Jesus. In fact, he identifies himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. And not in like a pretentious way, just in a, in a nice kind of way. He was the disciple who Jesus loved. And so he walked with Jesus most all of his life. And he walked away believing without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the king of the cosmos. That Jesus Christ really was God in the flesh. He recognized, he saw, he witnessed Jesus die saw him be buried for three days, and then interacted with him after he was raised from the dead. John believes that Jesus is the most significant person in all of history. He believes that Jesus is God. He is creator. He is redeemer. And he writes to this end. He tells us, in fact, in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, that he writes so that we will believe in Jesus. He writes this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to, by the time we're finished reading through his gospel, to have the same reaction of the infamous doubting Thomas, who fell upon his knees and said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is what John is after. He opens his gospel in a most incredible way. Look with me at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's just take that first proposition. In the beginning was the Word. And based on our scripture reading earlier today, we might be thinking like good first century Jews. And what comes to our mind when we hear in the beginning is God. Right? In the beginning, it's how Genesis opens up. In the beginning was God, and he created the heavens and the earth. If we're filling in the blanks in this sentence like a Mad Lib, that's how we're going to fill it in. God is there in the beginning. He's self-existent, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, all glorious. And then he creates. But as we read, we see John has done something different here. And it's surprising. He doesn't say, in the beginning was God. He says, 
in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And there's a good bit to untangle here, but I think the first question we have to ask is who or what is this Word? And John is later going to identify that this Word is, is Jesus. It's actually a title that he applies to Jesus. And it makes perfect sense because God's Word is personified throughout the Old Testament. And what we mean by that is God's Word does things and kind of acts as if it were a person. Right? We see it in Isaiah 55 when God says, My Word will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire. See that God delivers by his word in Psalm 107. When some people were ill, God sent forth his word and healed them. In Psalm 33, 6, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath or spirit of his mouth. We can see that God creates by his word. He speaks and things come into existence that didn't exist prior And so what happens throughout the Old Testament and through the mouths of the prophets is that God reveals himself to his people through his word. His word is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and deliverance. And the personification of that word makes it an appropriate title for John to apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God's ultimate self disclosure. He is the Word. We see in verse 14, indeed, that He is the Word made flesh. Verse 14, we read, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the second question we have to ask in our series of questions, who or what is this word? Uh, I kind of spoiled it for you like it's going to be Jesus. Jesus is the word. The word is the ancient agent of creation. And John argues that the word is God, that Jesus is God. Which leads us to the question, how, how can the word both be God and be with God? Yeah, it's a little bit confusing. And the answer, of course, is the Trinity, right? We did that catechism question earlier. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so the answer is that God is bigger and much more complex than we ever imagined. That God is multipersonal. That he is, he is three persons And yet, one God, one substance. And that's kind of mind-bending. And what's typical of Christians when we try to explain or understand this glorious truth about the triune nature of our God is that we come up with analogies or illustrations, and and often bad ones. And so I'm going to point out some of the bad ones. (laughs) Uh, So you've heard, uh, well, God in his triune nature, God is, is a little bit like an egg. Right, there's the outer shell part of an egg, and then uh, there's uh, like the white of the egg, and then there's the, the yolk part, right? Three parts, one egg, and so likewise, God is three persons, one God, right? This is a bad analogy because 
the egg is not the same. The shell is not the same as the center. And the center is not the same as the white. In fact, to talk of God this way is to commit the error of tritheism, right? It, it makes three distinct gods. If you try to illustrate it that way, you end up with three gods. And that's, that's not what the Bible teaches, right? That the Bible teaches us how we arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity is simply by reading our Bibles. The church has been agreed on it for, oh, I don't know, as long as the church has been in existence. You can't add up the persons of God so that you end up with three gods. That's the error of tritheism. And you can't reduce it down so that there's just one kind of unipersonal God because that's not what the Bible teaches either. And so we see this in, in uh, probably a more popular illustration where someone will say, you see, God is, is in the same way that he is three, it's like how I'm a father to my children, the, the son of my parents, and the husband of my wife. This is the error of modalism, also a heresy condemned very early on in the church. And what it says is that, I like to call it moodalism because it helps me remember what it is, as if God has different moods that he's in, and then he just changes and acts according to that. But you can see it's just one person, solitary figure. And that's problematic on a number of levels, first being that's not what we see in the Bible. And the second is, is that a singular person cannot be intrinsically loving, right? And the God of the Bible is intrinsically loving. For all eternity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have existed in perfect community with one another, in perfect loving community. In fact, it's this love that is shared within God's self that is extended to us, that overflows to us. God is bigger and more complex than some of these analogies that we try to employ. Trinitarianism teaches, Christianity teaches, that there is one God made up of three persons who know and love one another. And so God is not more fundamentally one than he is three, and he's not more fundamentally three than he is one. And so when it comes to trying to explain the triunity of God, uh, we best use the words of that ancient Athanasian creed. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing or blending their persons nor dividing their essence. That might be a little scholarly for you. It is for me. I, have a hard, I had to read it just there. And so what I try to do is just remember three statements about God that are all true according to the Bible. There is one God. That's the first statement. There's one God. Second, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God. Statement number three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. You know what? That sounds kind of contradictory. How does, how does that work together? Let me try to illustrate by using three different statements. The woman does not have the car keys. That's the first statement. Second statement, the doors and the windows of the vehicle are locked. And third statement, the woman gets the packages out of the car. I'll let you play with this brain teaser for a moment. Can't get in. So I'm going to give you a fourth statement that's going to clear all that up, make the first three statements make sense. How is it that she gets the keys out of the car or the packages out of the car? 
Well, statement number four, the car is a convertible. And so that fourth statement makes the other three understandable. We, oh, that makes perfect sense now. Say, so, all right, unlock for me the mystery of the Trinity, pastor. What's the fourth statement? I don't know. I don't know. But I believe in the Trinity because this is how God has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. And one of the wonderful things about God is that there are things that fit in his mind that don't fit in my mind or in your mind. In fact, the only way we can know anything about God is if he reveals it to us. And the way God has chosen to reveal himself to us, including his triune makeup, is in the scriptures. And I say that to say, we don't have to know everything to know some things. We don't have to know every possible thing there is to know about God to know some true things about God. In fact, even in all eternity, we will not exhaust all there is to know about our glorious God and King. But we will know many, many things about Him. And we'll know Him personally. And so we might not know how the Trinity works, but we can know that it's true because God has revealed it to us in His Word. He's revealed Himself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we can, we can believe in him. We can believe in the triune God of Christianity. And so I share all of that to say when, when you are in a place where somebody says, explain to me the Trinity, that you don't feel tempted to kind of grasp for analogies to make it more comprehensible, right? Well, he's, he's like an egg or a three-leaf clover or, or, or any of these things because they actually end up teaching wrongly about who God is. Instead, you can, you can look at, at your child when they ask how God is, is triune, or you can look at your friend, and you can smile, and you can say uh, with a twinkle in your eye, I don't know. God is mysterious, and he has revealed himself to be three persons and one God, and so I, I worship him. God is incredible. He's bigger than I could ever imagine. I'm so thankful that he has told me this about himself. You can boisterously sing when you come to church on a Sunday morning, holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You can worship this God without having exhaustive knowledge of him. God is triune. The doctrine of the Trinity does not fully explain his mysterious character, but rather it sets the boundaries outside of which we must not step. It defines the limits of our finite reflection and demands that we be faithful to the biblical revelation that in one sense, God is one. And in another sense, God is three. And so that's John's first point, that Jesus, who is the Word, that's a title applied to Jesus, Jesus, who is the Word, was with God in the beginning and is God. So he's saying Jesus is God. 
He's kind of giving us that, the building blocks of the doctrine of the Trinity here in verse one of chapter one of his book. That God is multipersonal. Another way that we identify God is that God is the one who creates and sustains. And that's our, our, our other question, right? What is God? Question two, we did it this morning. What is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And, and if you do check out the New City app, it has like a kid's mode and a little song that goes with it that I'll never forget. It came into my head this morning. It's like, God is the creator of everyone and everything. Do, do. I probably butchered it, but that's it's kind of how it goes. And you can remember this wonderful truth. And that's how John is going to proceed. He's going to say, uh, not only was Jesus with God in the beginning, he created all that is. He is the creator. So let's go back to verse one again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. This is a really important verse especially because it devastates those who would try to veil the deity of Jesus. You see, there are cults and false religions out there that will confess, yes, Jesus was a good guy, we, we like Jesus, we'll even say that we follow Jesus, but he wasn't God. And what they'll do is they'll come into to verse 1 here, and they'll do some violence to the Greek language, and instead of translating, he was God, they will say that the word was a God. And this is just a, a terrible translation. It, it breaks the rules of how Greek grammar works. But, but furthermore, it's undermined by the truth we have here in verse 3. Right? All things were created through him, that's Jesus, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And so you can see, I'm proud of this insert. There's this little box on your insert. And we'll pretend, I'm going to walk you through We're going to pretend like we're drawing it together. And so you can imagine drawing this, this square and titling it everything that exists. That's what's in the square, everything that exists. And then you draw a line down the center. And on one side you write, all things that never came into being. And then on the other side you write, all things that came into being. Right? And so uh, based on John 1, 3, we're going to put in that second box, the box on the right side, your right-hand side, if you're looking down at it, all these things were created through Jesus. So all created things goes in that box. Then on the other side of all things that never came into being, that's God. And so we ask the question, according to John 1, 3, 1, 1 through 3, which box does Jesus belong in? And it's the God box. That's right, because he is God. That's John's argument here, that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the creator. This is argued elsewhere throughout the New Testament. Uh, perhaps uh, one of my favorite places is in Colossians chapter 1. And so I'll read, I'll read to you from that passage, uh, not only to show this, but also to correct some misunderstanding about the verse. So we'll start at verse 15 in Colossians chapter 1. He, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So somebody might say, see, 
See, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. I told you he was a created being. And so it's like Arius, Arius was an early heretic in the early church. It's like Arius would say, like, um, you know, uh, God the Father is kind of like uh, the sun or a star, and then uh, Jesus is like the heat, and then the Holy Spirit is like the light. This is what God is like. But that's false, because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not creations of God the Father. They're one with him. There are three persons and one God. Co-equal in glory and power and majesty. That's false. This statement about Jesus being the firstborn over all creation is not a statement about his origin, but his authority, his rulership over all things. It's not a statement about sequence of time, but about Jesus' supremacy. Jesus is God. He has always existed. There never was a time when God the Son was not. He is the creator. So Colossians continues, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Jesus didn't just create everything that you see. He's created those things that we do not see. Those realms of angelic creatures, creatures and heavenly hosts. The invisible and the visible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Our, our God, Jesus, sustains the universe like a singer might sustain a musical note. He upholds it. He's, he's the um, spiritual gravity or glue that holds reality together. Jesus is God. He is creator. And Jesus is redeemer. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it, or understand it, or grasp it, is that word overcome. And what John does here is really brilliant. He's, he's like deliberately ambiguous, so that the second time we read his gospel through, we pick up on some of these clues. And so it's a little bit like if you've ever read a mystery novel, or a whodunit, and you learn who the killer is at the end, and then uh, you go back and you read the book again, and you see all these signs that it was that person all the way along. You're like, I know it was them. I always think of the sixth sense when I think of this, because I got to the end of that movie and was in for the shock of my lifetime. I won't ruin it for you if you're late to the party there. But, but you're like, you rewatch that, and I'm like, how did I miss all of this stuff that was telling me what the end was? And that's a little bit what John has done here. 
You see, he's kind of looking two directions. He, he wants us to think of Genesis, and he wants us to think of, in the beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth, and saying, let there be light amidst darkness. And he, he's also pointing us to what's going to happen in his gospel, where this, there's this motif between light and darkness, right? Light representing the good or, or the revelation, the word of God, and darkness representing kind of sin or, or death. And life in John becomes eternal life. And so we're kind of looking one eye at Genesis and, and, and one eye to the rest of John here. And we're recognizing that Jesus, who was the source of life at the creation of the world, is also going to be the source of eternal life, who saves sinful human beings from an eternity under God's wrath. He's going to be not only the one who created, he's also Redeemer. You fathom that? That this God that we've been describing, who was in perfect harmony and happiness with himself, doesn't need you or me, created the world, and then was rebelled against by his people, And instead of smiting us under his holy and right and just wrath, decided that God the Son would become one of us, die in our place for our sin, and rise from the dead so that when we put our faith in him, we could have confidence that we too would rise from the dead, so that we too would have eternal life, Maybe my favorite phrase in John's gospel is when uh, he raises Lazarus, right before he raises Lazarus, he's, he's walking there, he let Lazarus die by not going right away, and Martha comes and she, she's upset, and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who trusts in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he goes and he just says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes out alive. There's this wonderful picture of what happens when we come to Jesus as our Redeemer, as the one who gives us life. And Jesus did that in John's Gospel. He does that, and it actually precipitates the events that put him on the cross. And so Jesus, I love this picture, he raises those who would put their faith in him at the expense of his own life. He dies So that those who come to him and submit to him and say, my Lord and my God, might live. So that that you, Christian, when you die and are absent from flesh, can be present with God in the heavens. So that that you, Christian, when you are in the heavens with Christ, can know this this is really awesome, but it's not the end. Jesus is going to return to earth and make all things new and give me a new body. I am going to share in a resurrection like his. That's one of the things about Christmas I think we miss sometimes. It wasn't like a 33-year deal where God the Son said, I'm going to become a human being for 33 years, and in that 33 years, I'll die for their sins, I'll live a perfect life in their place, and then I'll rise from the dead so that when they trust in me, uh, they can have everlasting life. But then I'll go back to being spirit. Right? Well, God the Son remained what he was, remained God, but became what he was not. 
taking on a second human nature to himself. What this means, what we see in Scripture, is that God the Son forever remains a human being. You with me? God the Son, who, who created the universe in order to save us and redeem us from our sins, has become a human being, not only to die for us, not only to rise from the grave to free us from death, but to rule over us and live with us as a human being forever. This is, this is incredible. Friends, the incarnation and Christmas are a reminder about the depths to which God went to save his people. This is how deep the Father's love for us is. That he would send his only son to die on a cross in our place for our sins so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And friends, this is a salvation that we need, that all people need, because without it, we remain in darkness. We remain slaves to sin. Chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I've come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. I think most of us, oftentimes in our culture, read that, remain in darkness, what does that mean? We're all, we're all children of God. We're good with him, right? That's not what the Bible says. Ephesians 2 tells us we're children of wrath. We have set ourselves up as God's enemies. And it was when we were God's enemies that Christ Jesus died for our sins. So many of us want to read John 3.16 kind of sentimentally as if it wasn't bloody. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That means it's without Jesus' death, we will perish. And perish there is not cease to exist. It's to exist under the just wrath of God forever. And this is what Jesus died to save us from. But then if you keep reading after John 3.16 we read this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in Jesus is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe in Jesus is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so the default position of humanity is not to delight in God or to delight in the light, even though that's what we were made for. Our default position is sinful rebellion. We don't like the light. We're like, when, when Jesus shows up, before we've experienced the grace of God, when Jesus shows up somewhere, we're like cockroaches in a kitchen when the light comes on. Hopefully you've not had that experience where you see what happens there. But, but they all scurry. And they hide in the cabinets and in the darkest corners that they can find. And this is, the, this is how we are apart from Christ. We love our sin. We love the darkness. And even though the light shines, we don't understand it. 
We don't comprehend what's going on. So we continue in rebellion against it. We see the same rejection that happens throughout John's gospel in verse 10 here in chapter 1. Jesus was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of man, but of the will of God. God, in his grace and in his mercy, says, I am going to save those who prefer the darkness to the light by causing them to be born again. I am going to give them the gift of faith. I am going to save the people who have rebelled against me. And he goes to the cross to accomplish this great purpose, this great end. He dies in the place of sinners in the place of all who would put their faith in him. And he raises victorious from the dead to prove his person and his power, his his kingship, his ability to save, rises as the first fruits of the resurrection, the first of many. And friends, Jesus invites all of us to be born again. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus calls all of us to turn from our sin and to put our faith in him. This is a most difficult thing. He compares it to taking up a cross, an instrument of torture. And that even though he, he compares it, it says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, He also says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You've got burdens in your life. You've got pain in your life. You've got sins in your life. You've got things that are weighing you down, that are keeping you from God, the God that you were made to know and to enjoy forever. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You put that together with the cross and you recognize that when you take up the burden of the cross, it's very light and it's not heavy at all. That instead of being an instrument which causes us to shudder, it becomes something that reminds us of God's love for us. It becomes a symbol, not of death, but of resurrection. This is what God has done. He's taken us who deserve death and wrath and made us children of blessing, children of promise, his children. He does it through the blood of Christ. Friends, until until we see the bigness of this gospel, until we see the, the bigness of our triune God, we will not understand the meaning of Christmas. We will not see the bigness of it. We won't see the the bigness of Easter. We We won't see the goodness of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. 
and that he has not failed. Christian, keep following Jesus. Meditate on this truth. Marvel at the grace of God. Non-Christian, be born again. Say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, submit yourself to the King you were made to serve. There's no one like Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for loving us even though there was nothing in us worthy of love. We thank You that You in Your kindness sent Christ Jesus our Lord to die for us so that we might know You, so that we might live, so that we might enjoy life and light and be ransomed from the darkness that we had chosen. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. It is the most unbelievable and true and good and glorious story that has ever been written. We give you praise for your wonderful plan of salvation. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.